Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're all here. Glad that I'm here. Uh, glad that the Holy Spirit is here. God is among us and with us because we're gathered here in his name today. Isn't that wonderful? Wonderful truth for us to know. And we're going to, as Pastor Rob said, continue our series in the Psalms this morning, looking at Psalm 103. This is a Psalm of David. It's uh, one of many Psalms. In fact, 103 sits right in the middle of two Psalms, 102 and 104. Uh, but all three of these Psalms are written by David, and there seems to be a connection uh, between them. In Psalm 102, um, if you just want to kind of glance down through it, if you have your uh, Bibles there with you, you'll see that David was in the middle of a terrible situation. And uh, in the prayer, which is titled, A Prayer of One Afflicted, so you know that it's not going to be very good. And uh, in fact, he shares with us his misery, his loneliness, not being able to eat or sleep, basically wasting away. Anybody been in a situation like that in your life? He, uh, he chooses, however, to worship God regardless of what is happening in his life. He pleads with God. He begs with God to answer his prayer. And God, in fact, answers his prayer. And so in the middle of the psalm, you'll see uh, David begin to rejoice that God has answered his prayer. And he, he primarily rejoices, not so much because it's, it's affecting his comfort level, but he's, he's a joyful because he now has this opportunity to write this down, what's happened to him, that future generations will be able to praise the Lord as a result of what God has done in his life. And he ends, verse 28, with this, the children of your servants shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established before you. That's David's prayer as he closes uh, Psalm 20, or excuse me, 102. So there's, there's believed to be a connection. Bible scholars believe there may be a connection between 102 and 103 in that when you read 103, which we will in uh, just a moment, you'll see David in a different set of, of circumstances, a different mindset, uh, certainly, but perhaps as a result of what God has done in his life through this particular trial. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I know it was up earlier in the pre-service on the screen, but I'd like to read through this psalm with us, uh, not you reading with me, I'm just going to read, but uh, let's look at how that might be. So David begins the psalm with, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you 
with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Wonderful, powerful psalm, really. And today, we want to uh, get into this psalm and see a little more what God actually has for us uh, in this psalm today. So the first phrase in the opening verse here that we see is, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. The command to bless is strong and deliberate. But who's he speaking to? He's speaking to himself. He's speaking to his soul. He's addressing his soul. So he's seeking blessing, which is not uncommon in the Old Testament. Blessing was, was really favor. It often meant when uh, blessing was passed from an elder, perhaps a grandparent, and we see this in the Old Testament, to a child. It is the passing of God's favor uh, upon that person and the person who's giving the blessing on that particular individual. And so that favor and that blessing was sought, it was desirable, it was looked after, uh, favor often involved inheritance. And so the authority that often went along with an inheritance, whether it was property or uh, whether it was livestock, whatever was involved, it was that uh, which was desired 
uh, above many and most things. We often look to God for blessing, not to ourselves, for how we can bless God. But interestingly enough, that's really what Psalm 103 is all about. It is, it's a result of God's blessing on David's life, as, as we'll see, but it really has to do with the blessing that God desires from us and that we, and rightfully so, should be passing on to him. To bless God is to humbly adore him, literally to bow low before him as we give him thanksgiving. When we live in obedience to his law, to his commands, we bless him. When we care for the poor, we bless him. We care for the needy and the sick and orphans and widows, we bless him because it is through those things which he's commanded his church and his people to do that God is blessed. Notice that here in the phrase, bless the Lord, that the Lord is all in caps. So it's capital letters. When that happens in the scripture, as you're reading scripture, it is a reference to Yahweh. It's a reference to Jehovah. It is a reference to God Almighty, the everlasting God, God Most High, Creator God, is who is referenced here in the Lord. So it is passing, so, so blessing the Lord that David is asking us and commanding, really, it's not an ask that he's making to his soul. It is a command, bless the Lord, O my soul, and the Lord here is, is Yahweh, is Jehovah. Most of us understand that there are three dimensions of our lives. Physical dimension, that which is what we interact with the world in, of course, our, our bodies, but also two that are not. We, we are not able to see them, but they are very present and they are very real. And that is our soul and our, our spirit. It's interesting that I think in the day and age in which we live, we spend a great deal of time looking after, caring for, paying attention to our bodies, being worried, concerned, careful about them, nothing wrong with any of that, but we spend very little time really interacting with two extremely important parts of who we are. Well, we do, but we just don't realize it, I don't think. We're not cognizant of the fact that our soul and our spirit are very real entities. I got to thinking about this as I was preparing for the sermon, and so I just typed soul into Google. And the top 10 responses, uh, is this is what I got. Soul, look it up in Wikipedia. Soul, the 2020 Pixar animation film. Soul, food. Soul's your boy, he's a rapper. Soul, mate. Sold store, S-O-U-L-E-D, store. 
Soul Eater characters. Soul Calibur 6, a video game. Soul Lucians, a restaurant on Salina Street in Syracuse. <laughs> Soul, the game series. Those are the top 10 responses uh, when I typed in the word soul. Well, the Hebrew word for soul that comes to us, translated soul, occurs 750 times in the Old Testament. It's something that David was very familiar with, and not only David, his entire culture. The Hebrew culture was very conscious of the soul and what the soul was and the role that the soul played in the life of every human being. When, although David didn't know this, but when the New Testament was written in the book of, uh, or books of the Bible were written in Aramaic and Greek, the Greek word for soul, psyche, is a word that's actually transliterated into English. So we use the name or term psyche and have some understanding of it. Though psyche, as we use the word today, isn't necessarily uh, entirely informative of what it was in New Testament times. But that word appears about 100 times in the New Testament to mean soul. There are five commonly understood functions of the soul that David would have known and that play, I think, an important part in our understanding what it is that he means when he addresses his soul and says, bless the Lord, O my soul. The first is to represent the human being. So, Human being, soul, soul, human being. I don't know exactly how many people we have in our worship center this morning, but let's say that there are about 400 of us here in church today. And if we were to describe that in terms of souls, we would say that there were 400 souls in the worship center today. That's essentially the the intent or meaning of the word soul in this first function. Um, the second is to represent a physical life force. So when someone dies, we watch their soul pass from them. Uh, there is an example in Genesis 35, verse 18, where Rachel, at the birth of her son Benjamin, is dying, and she says, soul was departing from her, she was, for she was dying. She called his name Benoni. Um, so that's another function of the word soul. A third is to represent the dynamic source of intellect and knowing. We have an example of that in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22 where it is said that uh, Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That is, he was strengthening them with knowledge. He was challenging them through their intellect, that aspect of the soul, 
in which he was, in his soul, interacting with the souls that he was discipling. There's a fourth to represent the dynamic source of our emotions. So things like distress, love, joy, desire, sorrow, strong emotions are seated in the soul as well as having the physical and emotional effects that they bring about. Matthew 28, verse 18, quoting Isaiah 42, 1 uh, and through 3, says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And then the fifth, to represent the dynamic source of the will. The source of uh, what a person intends, wants, needs to do. And that's the sense that we have here in Psalm 103. It's in that uh, sense of the soul being the source, the seat of uh, the will of man, that he's challenging his soul to bless the Lord. This psalm has basically three parts that we're going to look at uh, today. Verses 1 through 5, in which David challenges his soul to bless the Lord. Verses 6 through 18, where David pensively recalls, I believe, the Lord's blessings, both to the nation Israel as well as to himself. And it may be in this context that David would have written Psalm 103 if it was in response to his experience in Psalm 102. And then finally, verses 19 through 22, David summons heaven and earth to bless the Lord. So let's look at verses 1 through 5, where David challenges his soul to bless the Lord. And imagine with me, if you will, this picture of David either looking into a mirror or perhaps a reflection pool uh, that would have been present in uh, Jerusalem. And looking into that mirror or looking into himself and addressing his soul as he is doing that. So he's, he makes the challenge as we read in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. But then in verse 2, he repeats that. He repeats it for emphasis. It's not that he, he didn't say enough in verse 1, but it was that for emphasis sake, I believe, he says again, bless the Lord, O my soul. Challenging his soul not to forget the benefits that have come to it, his soul, and himself, the benefits I have experienced, essentially, in my life, both as a member of God's family and a member of the nation of Israel, but also because of God's blessing uh, upon my life. And then in verses 3 through 5, we list, or he lists those benefits. He lists them as 
the soul being forgiven of all of its iniquity. In verse 3, in verse 3 also, whose diseases have been healed. We almost take for granted, in the United States especially, the blessings that we have of, of health care that continues to progress and discover things that are simply amazing, simply amazing. But none of that was true in David's day. And when anyone was sick, if they were a, a believer, they went to God. They took their petitions to God. And so it was the it was God who was the healer of all of their diseases because he was the one who could heal. And in verse 4, we see he redeems your life from the pit. He redeems your life from the pit, the pit being the grave. So the grave wasn't final for David. It was only a, a um, stop because... <laughs> Uh, it was God, the Lord, who redeems his life from the pit. And it was that redemption that he had to look forward to. Now you see, that redemption didn't take place until Jesus, right? So how could that happen? Well, it happened by faith, just as it happens by faith with us. When by faith we look back on what Christ has done for us in securing our salvation, David and those in his generation and generations before him, generations after him, looked forward to what it was that someday a Redeemer, the Redeemer, the Messiah would, would secure for them in their anticipation of that. And so David looks forward to that happening. In verse 4, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And there's that word steadfast love. You recall last week, uh, Pastor uh, was uh, taking us through a psalm that spoke about steadfast love as well. Steadfast love is a, is a major theme of David's in these verses. But what does steadfast love mean? It's actually a necessary translation using two words because in the English language, you do not have one word to adequately express what steadfast love meant in Hebrew. It was a word and is a term when we see it and read it that includes God's loyalty. It, in fact, sometimes... It is translated as loyal love, God's loyal love to us. Um, steadfast love is a love that, that has mercy associated with it. But most importantly, it has God's faithfulness and the guarantee of his faithfulness that's associated with it because it is seated, rooted in the covenant that God makes with us. God is, is our covenant God. He being the one who is able to say, I will save you, I will redeem you, and guarantee that that's going to happen. 
And so when we see the term steadfast love, and it appears four times in this psalm, and we'll, we'll kind of, as we, as we go through the psalm, we'll look at it uh, as, as we have time to do that. But steadfast love, Hebrew word hesed, is a word that describes God's loyal, faithful love, regardless of, of circumstances. And because it is merciful, I can fail in my love and still experience his steadfast love, which never changes and is always secure. Isn't that a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful blessing? I, I love the concept of steadfast love. So in these three, or excuse me, five, six verses, we see that God is the one that, that David is appealing to as he peers into this mirror or fountain and speaks to himself, addressing his soul. Now, in verses 6 through 18, which is the next major section of this psalm, David recalls the Lord's blessings. And as he does, I can picture in my mind anyway, kind of him, him taking his, his gaze off from the mirror or the pool and just looking away and pensively thinking uh, about what it was that God did and how it was that he has worked in his life. Again, if Psalm 103 is tied to his his tragic experiences in Psalm 102, this would have been a way for David to express in Psalm 103 what that blessing meant to him as, as God rescued him from, from that situation. And so as we see David recalling the Lord's blessings, we think of him anyway as, as looking away. So in verse um, six, his righteousness and justice has been throughout Israel's history, God's presence with them. You, you can see time and time again, and you can just think about the circumstances through which Israel had been taken and how it was that uh, this steadfast love of the Lord was undergirding them when they were going through all their tribulations in Egypt, when they left Egypt and God took them through the Red Sea and their enemies were destroyed, but they survived. Why? Because God miraculously intervened as a result of his promised steadfast love. In verse 7, we see that Jehovah is the God who reveals himself. And so how does he state this? Well, he was, he's, his ways were known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. You know, Christianity is the only religion that exists that is focused on our God's revelation of himself and his truths, who he is, why he does what he does, and invites us, his people, his worshipers, to enjoy and experience those things together. 
If someone asks you, well, why is Christianity so special? It's special because of Christ that forms the center of that. And, uh, and it is God revealing himself and his plans and his purposes to us. So he doesn't keep us in the dark. We know and we have the opportunity to respond. In verse 8, he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So it's not just something that God measures out as needed or if you're worthy. God is a God who abounds in steadfast love. He's got steadfast love everywhere. He's passing it out to anyone who will fear him and obey his commandments, as we will see a little bit later here in the psalm. But it is descriptive of what God desires to do. Now, from verse 8, which if you think of it as being kind of a bookmark on this psalm, or a, a bookend, uh, all the way to verse 17, verses 17 and 18 actually, where you get the second bookend, there is a, there is a theme that, that addresses us, the reader of the psalm. And in this psalm, God is merciful in verse 8 and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And because of that love, verse 9, he will not chide. That is, he won't admonish us, rebuke us, approve us. You know the feeling you got, if you got it, when you went to the principal's office as a kid? <laughs> And, and you were waiting to get out of there. You were kind of at that point willing to do anything to get out of here. I just hate being in the principal's office. It's, it's that kind of feeling. So you don't have to wait and expect that God is just going to continue to put his finger in your face and chide you and rebuke you and reprove you for what you have done. No. The psalmist says God doesn't work that way. But does God do that in our lives? Absolutely. Do we need it? Yeah. Would he do it if we didn't? No. <laughs> because that's not who God is. God doesn't desire to do that. Some of us have come to know God that way. We've, we fear God in that way. In fact, many of us harbor a certain amount of anger toward God because we have had that type of experience. We're not entirely sure that we can trust him. Not entirely sure because of this or that or whatever it was that took place. It's very, very common, really, for us as humans to have those feelings. But, but he won't chide us. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins. If God were to deal with you according to your sins, if he were to deal with me according to my sins, what would my life be like? Pretty miserable. Because we're sinners. That's why we sin. We are sinners. God knows that we are sinners. But even in knowing that we are sinners, he does not deal with us according to our sins. Isn't that marvelous? 
He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He does not pay us or repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't get even with us. He doesn't get back at us. You stupid person. It's right there. It's black and white. You can read it right. You've heard it right. You know that right. No, that's what the enemy of our soul does in our heads. That's how, that's how the devil works, not how God works. He persecutes us, but God does not persecute us. He loves us. He, he is merciful toward us. Again, the steadfast love. His steadfast love, verse 11, this is where this word pops up again. The next time, his steadfast love is so great that it extends as high as the heavens are above the earth. The Hebrews believed that there were three levels of heaven. The first level of heaven was where the birds fly. We can see that. We even interact it. We breathe the air of that first heaven. In the second heaven is where the stars and the sun and the moon existed could see them. There were blessings and benefits that came to them as a result of that. And then there was a third heaven, and it was in the third heaven and is in the third heaven where God is and where his holy angels are and the heavenly hosts are in that third heaven. In the scriptures in the New Testament, Paul says that he was taken by the Spirit into that third heaven. He describes it a bit, not for phenomena's sake, but because of the fact that he wanted these people that he's writing to to know that he's had incredible spiritual experiences in his life. But but God's steadfast love expends, extends as high as those heavens. And he adds the condition of those who fear him. This is the first time in this psalm that we see that in order to experience God's steadfast love, there needs to be a, a, a reconciliation between God and man. And, and we need to fear him. That's the expression of fear. We need to not, not tremble or quake in our boots, though I would say this, that if God were to appear today, we'd all be shaking in our boots. Because God is a holy God. But he means by fear that we honor him, we respect him, we believe that what he says in his word is true. We believe that because he is a holy, just God, there will be a judgment someday. And that judgment will be as a result of our sins, if not forgiven and taken care of because of what Jesus has done. And we're left trying to kind of mumble through some reasoning as to why God should forgive us, uh, we won't make it. It's only going to be because of his steadfast love. So in verse 11, 
There is a reasoning for that. David continues to kind of pensively think through that God removes our transgressions then as far as the east is from the west. You, if, if God is taking care of your sins, you never have to worry about them coming back to haunt you as far as God is concerned. Because you know how far the east is from the west? Well, think through your geometry class. When you draw the line on the board, how, long does, how far does that line go? Infinity, right? The rest of it does anyway. But if you think about God removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, then he has removed our sins from us when east becomes west and west becomes east. And it's a description of eternity, folks. As far as the east is from the west is eternal. God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. In another portion of scripture, God describes those sins as being placed behind his back so he can't see them, buried in the deepest sea so they can never be found. Verse 12, he removes them from our, our presence, from uh, our experience as far as the east is from the west. The Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And in the same way as a father shows compassion to his children, verse 14, the Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He thinks back to the creation of man and how God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the King James Bible says that man became a living what? Soul. A living soul. In keeping with the understanding the Hebrews had of what soul meant. So in verses, um, in verses 15 and 16, the vastness of Jehovah's steadfast love toward those who fear him and his ability to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west is contrasted with the fleeting, frail, and significant nature of man. He goes into man being a blade of grass. It appears as, doesn't say dandelion, but think about a dandelion that appears and then it's suddenly all fluffy the second time you look and then what happens to the fluff? It blows away. And what happens to the next of it? It's, it's gone. It withers. That's how man is likened to in light of who this magnificent God is. And that contrast then is uh, a picture here. So, so in the picture that we have of what God has done for us is really amazing. Verses 8 through 18 really um, uh, are a, a wonderful place for us to go back and simply recall what it is that God has done for us. Imagine, folks, this is ancient literature 
This, is, <laughs> this was written hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus was born. And that was many years ago. But, but that's as real for us today as it was for any of God's followers then. So in the, in the final section here, David summons heaven and earth to bless the Lord. And with this, I picture David looking up to the heavens and blessing the Lord uh, who is the maker of those. And in verse 19, um, Jehovah reigns from the highest heavens over all, the th this third heaven we were talking about. And everything then is in his domain. Verse 20, since he rules over the angels, part of his created order, he summons them to bless the Lord. And in verse 21, he rules over all the heavenly host, those who minister and do his will. David summons them to bless the Lord. In verse 22, he, he finally uh, summons all of his works, all of his, in all places of his dominion to bless the Lord, uh, which brings us back full circle as he ends the psalm to himself. And I can picture David turning his head from looking up to the heavens to back to the mirror and saying more powerfully than he could ever have said before, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. See, you and I have a, a, an ability to interact with our souls. And it's one of the reasons we actually do interact, but we just don't, we don't identify it. I think one of the blessings of Psalm 103 is that it helps us to identify the reality of our souls in our lives and to understand that when God saves our souls, he saves us. He saves all of us. And uh, this is such a, a beautiful picture for us. There's an, uh, with this, I'm going to wrap up. There's a song most of us are familiar with um, that is is called um, the, the um, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. In the second stanza of that, the writer says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless, helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Those lyrics are true. There is, they are as uh, true for us in our time as they were for David in his time, and as real as the knowledge of God's steadfast love being for those, anyone who will seek or say, yes, God, I believe that you are, and I want you to be my Savior. I fear you. 
and I repent of all of my sins and desire for you to be my Lord and Savior. So my question to us this morning, is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? If it is, we thank God and praise God with you. But if it isn't, it's not too late to make God your God. The question is, does God's steadfast love cover you? Does God's steadfast love cover your sins? If it doesn't, it, it can. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, we read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes, but it is with the mouth that one confesses he is saved. <laughs> 